Let's open our Bibles once again this morning to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10 verses 1 through 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. Let us hear the message that your spirit speaks into our ear. We know it will be in alignment entirely with the Word of God. And God, I pray that you would guard my heart and guard my tongue as I preach from that very Word that is sanctified because it proceeded directly from you. In all these things, we worship you and we are able to worship you only through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. This week I'd like to make the first of a couple of topical studies uh, that are suggested in our text. We need to understand a little bit behind uh, what is being said here in the text. And so if the Lord is willing, I plan to look at one topic this week and next week, because it's a rather large topic. And then we'll look at the second topic immediately following. And so today, let's look at the meaning and purpose of the covenants in Scripture. Even those that are not of the same type as Shechaniah is proposing in our text today. Last week I mentioned that the covenant Shechaniah is proposing is not a theological covenant. And I'd like to explain what I mean by that. Because the covenant that Shechaniah is proposing is not a covenant between God and man. What he is proposing is a covenant between men who are equal, but made in the presence of God and for the sake of His law. It's simply a covenant between people. A solemn vow to be sure, and because of that it's still a holy thing. It's a promise to be kept at all costs. But this is not one like the great covenants of the Scripture where God Himself makes the proposal and dictates the terms. It's certainly not one that binds God in any way to the outcome. That would be completely ludicrous. Ludicrous to think that any man could bind God in any way. That we can stand up to God and say, You shall do this for me. That's what the idolaters do, isn't it? 
I worshipped you. Give me rain. I worshipped you. I followed you. Give me health. Give me strength. Give me prosperity. Or like the priests of Baal that stood atop the mountain with Elijah. They cry out, we have drawn our own blood. Answer us. That is what idolaters do. It's a common plea among those who do not know Jesus Christ that because they have given something to God, He owes them something in return. When they aren't satisfied, they shake their fists and they cry for justice. But the truly faithful... Those that know the depth of guilt that their sin carries bow their knees and beg for God's mercy. We don't want justice for our sins. We need mercy for our sins. God cannot be bound by the will or the activity of man ever. But we also see throughout Scripture that He has bound Himself by His perfect Word and His own will to certain things. And it's those covenants that He makes with man that I'd like to look at both today and next week. And we look at it now because in the context of Shechaniah's proposal to Ezra, he uses the word covenant to describe the agreement that they will make before God as they repent of their sin. And in using that word, he could have said, let's make a contract, let's make an agreement. But he said, let us make a covenant. Because he is also reminding them that they are a people who stands under a covenant as well. A covenant that God has made with them And He's made with their people. But we know now things that Shechaniah could only hope for. And that's why I'm I'm lifting us out of the text for this short period of time. To examine what the full scripture says about the covenants that God has given us. Because we have a greater light than Shechaniah did. We have a greater light than Ezra did. Because we live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Shechaniah, Ezra lived in the times of promise. When the revelation of God's redemptive plan was still in progress, we live in the days of its fulfillment. We live in the days that the Bible calls the last days. The days that God has fulfilled all His promises and has brought all His people to Himself through Jesus Christ. These promises were delivered, each one, in the context of a covenant that God made with man. And so as we look through these covenants this morning and next, we'll see the unfolding revelation of God in them. And we'll see them all culminating in a single man, Jesus Christ. 
and to make it as simple as possible for each of these covenants. I'll try to point out for each covenant the revelation, the thing that we learn about God that we never knew before, and the relation, the relationship that that covenant has that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the first covenant we actually read about this morning in our Old Testament reading was delivered in the Garden of Eden. It was a simple statement. The covenant being made in Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 16. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. That command, if you eat from the forbidden tree, you will die. If you don't, you will live. You have access to every tree in the garden, including the tree of life. Just don't eat from this one tree. See, this is what is known as a covenant of works. And it is the only time ever that a simple man could merit eternal life with God. The only time. Because Adam was made sinless. He was made perfect. And so in this covenant of works, Adam, by his own efforts, could remain in fellowship with God forever. The basis of it? Don't sin. Not even once. Not even a little bit. Because the covenant of works with Adam reveals many things about God. The first thing it reveals is that God is holy. And because He is holy, He can't have sin before Him. His righteousness seeks out any sin. His justice destroys sin. And when Adam made the choice to eat the fruit that his wife gave him, he condemned himself and all his descendants to lives that were controlled by sin. And therefore, they could not stand before a holy God any longer. The second thing we learn in this covenant is that God is merciful. It could be argued that God was merciful because He expelled them from the garden. We read why He did that this morning in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and following. That when the, Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. God's merciful act meant that man... Adam and his race would not have to live in their sin forever. They could be redeemed because death would happen. They could be freed from that sin by death. And we see that fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But also I would like you to see this. That God is merciful because He held everyone under Adam's sin. The theologians call it being the federal head. 
But many people rail against that doctrine, the doctrine of original sin. They call it unfair of God to hold us guilty, to have us endure the penalty of sin, to have us endure death, to have us live in a fallen world because of the sin of a single man. How in the world can God do that to us? But I absolutely love the response that the Scriptures have because the Scriptures do respond to that. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul tells us, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even through one act of righteousness there resulted justification to life of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. What is he saying there? He is saying in this passage and so many others in the New Testament that because God shut up everyone inside of Adam's sin, one man caused everyone to fall, then one man can cause everyone who is called to be righteous. That one man, Adam, caused the entire world to fall. That one man, Jesus Christ, has raised us all to new life and to be a new creation. God is merciful because He put us under original sin so that He could redeem us out of that sin and into His household. This passage and so many others explain to us that because God counted Adam's sin to include all those who were in Adam, that God would likewise include in righteousness all those who are in Christ. Because following, following Adam's failure to obey perfectly the command of our holy God, God immediately began His second covenant the covenant of redemption. And this covenant covers every single covenant after this. It is an increasing unfolding of God's revelation of Himself. Each covenant is a progressive revelation of what God intends to do through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so even in the garden, even in the aftermath, we see two things that point forward to the ultimate fulfillment of His great redemptive plan established before the foundation of the world. The first is the promise of the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, as God is speaking to the serpent, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born of a woman, not of a man. He would be her seed. And this work would be to crush the head of the serpent who is unmasked in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, 
when we read, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We need every single word of Scripture because that is where we are told who the serpent was in the garden. The second thing we see is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. The first death, the first sacrifice was made to cover the nakedness of sinful man and woman. In commenting on the sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 9 verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so we see right there in the garden, right there at the beginning of the revelation of God's plan of redemption, we see that blood was shed. And so we move on to the second covenant that we see in the Old Testament. And that covenant was made to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. This is after the flood, after the ark was built, after the animals were gathered, after the entire world was flooded, until no living animal on land No human being on land survived except those that were in that ark. And once it has come to rest, and once the animals are released, God speaks with Noah and He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now we look at the covenant with Noah, and we think, okay, this is where the rainbow came from. But it is a covenant. And so from the time of Adam to the time of Noah, the people on the earth had grown so corrupt that we were told in Genesis 6-6 that the Lord was sorry He had made man on the earth. And He was grieved in His heart. But Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And so God ordained a worldwide flood, killing every single animal, every single person, except the eight people and the animals carried in the ark of Noah. And so we thus learn that God's judgment is sure. 
That is what he reveals in this. That God's judgment will happen. We might not have known that if we looked at just the mercy that he had shown Adam. But we see God acting in judgment on the earth through Noah. And even in his judgment, we can see that his eye is ever on his people. God could have started over. He could have said, I'm not going to save anything here. I'm going to wipe it all out. Take every single animal, take every single human, wipe them all out and build up another one from the dust of the ground. He could have done that, but he didn't. He loved us so much that he continued the thread of redemption through that history. And though there are only eight people on the earth that it pleased him to save, he did not forget his faithful people in his wrath. And the covenant that he made afterward means that he will not judge the earth in its entirety until after the redemption through the, through the Messiah is complete. He would never flood the earth again. There would not be a judgment for the entire earth until that final day. And in that day, it will be consumed by fire. And so everything in the covenant signed by the rainbow declares that God will be faithful to the descendants of this one man, Noah, and will continue with his plan of redemption. Now one last thing on this rainbow. I'd point out where it hangs. It hangs between heaven and earth. And I think in the progressive revelation of God's redemptive plan, we would do well to remember another covenant sign that hung between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ on the cross. I don't think this is accidental. I don't think it is incidental. I think that God is God's continuing revelation of how He will redeem His people is found even in the sign of the bow in the clouds. Because He says, whenever I look down upon the earth, I will remember my covenant. Because that bow hangs between heaven and earth. Because Jesus Christ hung between heaven and earth. God's covenant is sure. The third covenant we'll look at, and the last one for today, is the covenant that God made with Abram. Also known as Abraham, depending on when in, your life, when in his life you read. Genesis 12 through 25 chronicles the life of Abraham. And we see God make promises to him throughout. We see in 12.2 that God tells him, I'll make you a great nation. In 12.3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later on, he tells him, you'll have a son Isaac. And it is through him that the promise will be fulfilled. And this son was born when he was 99 years old. But the most important thing about the covenant with Abraham is found in Genesis 15.6. 
It says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Through Abraham and his descendants, God was going to bless the entire world, but it began with Abraham's faith. It began, actually, it began with God's call to Abraham or to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. And that's the common denominator of all of God's covenants. He chooses the recipients. Adam didn't search for God. He was created by God. Noah was called by God. Abram was called by God. We'll see next week Moses and David were called, chosen specifically for those things that accomplished the works of God. Abram heard God while he was still in his homeland. And when he was quite old, when God calls, though, he provides faith to follow. And we see Abraham's faith reckoned as righteousness. Paul brings out that very fact in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. He says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but it's what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If the Lord is willing, next week we'll look at how the faith given to Abraham works with the law given to Moses and how each is a part of God's great redemptive plan. But here in Abraham, we see the increasing revelation of God's plan. And we have the great covenant with Abraham sealed by by the ritual of circumcision. And we learn the following things about God. First, that He sets apart people for His works. We might have gotten the idea from Noah... But in Abram, we see God making specific promises to one man, to one family. Noah got the promises because he was the only father left on earth. Abram is called from among the idolaters of the land. The second thing we learn about God is that God chooses people before they've done anything. In Genesis 17, 19, God tells Abram, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Isaac was not even born yet, and God had chosen him. God had named him. God had set him apart to be the carrier of his covenant. Because God's choices are for his own purposes. And the salvation he offers is completely through himself. The third thing we learn about God is that he will base this redemption that he is offering on faith alone. 
There's no longer an opportunity for man to earn his way to eternal life. Adam destroyed that opportunity. But what was implied in Noah, and we see highlighted in Abraham, is the righteous will live by faith. Not in any general kind of faith, oh, I just believe in everything, but faith in God that follows him where he leads to trust him in what he says and to obey him in what he commands. That is the faith that God honors. Not that we have a faith that what we say is going to happen. That we have a faith that what God says is always going to happen. We trust Him and Him alone. In a salvation of works, Abraham had no chance. And we know enough about him to know he had no chance at all. He lied twice about Sarah being his sister and not his wife just to preserve his life. He tried to force the promises of God. When God said, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. When he had no sons at all. And so he tried to force it by sleeping with servants to have children. And we see Ishmael coming from that. Because Abraham was going to help God out to accomplish his word. But Abraham's salvation was not based on works. His righteousness depended entirely on faith. And in Christ, our righteousness is given by being joined with Him in faith as well. The fourth thing we learn about God through the life of Abraham is that God will provide for Himself. A lamb. You remember the story. Isaac, that very son of promise, the one that God named before he was ever born, declared by God to be the one who would carry his covenant. One day, God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, take your son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. On the way to the mountain, Isaac even asked his father, when they had separated from the servants, when they had separated from everyone, and it was just him and his father, Isaac asked, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? An innocent question that the man of God answered in the only way he could. Abraham said to him, God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The writer of Hebrews, in that great chapter 11, known often as the Hall of Faith, says this about Abraham's response. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. 
Abraham's faith in God and his faith in God's promises was such that in spite of not understanding the command, Abraham obeyed God's command. The whole while considering that if God had provided this son to be a lamb, then God would work out how all the promises would be true. Even if he had to raise Isaac from the dead. But in the end, God, with the same voice of command, stayed Abraham's hand, even as the knife was lifted. And a ram was caught by his horns in the brush. A lamb that God had prepared as a sacrifice in favor of both Abraham and Isaac. For Abraham, the ram was his offering. For Isaac, the ram was his substitute. And we see in Jesus Christ those two same things coming together on the cross. The offering for sin and the substitute for our lives. What God had commanded Abraham to do, God actually did. He sacrificed His only begotten Son on a cross to save His people. And so in closing, you may be asking a very legitimate question hearing all these things. What shall we do? I'll confess... I have considered this question all along. It's not as simple in a message like this to say, do this or that. If I was preaching on stealing, it's a very simple application. Don't steal. Or if I'm preaching about lying, it's a very simple application. Don't lie. And I will, I will also tell you I have no interest in making you the unbeatable Bible trivia game player by this message. But the more I considered the question of where shall we, what then shall we do, I come to the following suggestions for us all to remember as we recall God's gracious deeds through history. The first is we need to always remember God's works. Many psalms, including Psalm 78, Psalm 105 through 107, and Psalm 135 and 136 and others, are simple recounting of the works of God in history. We should never forget what God has done to get us where we are. When Stephen gave his defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, he recounted to all those assembled God's redemptive history from the Old Testament to carry them into the presence of Jesus Christ who fulfills every promise God had ever made. There is instruction in allowing ourselves to look at everything from a high altitude seeing the great workings of God as He has revealed Himself over a great swath of time, and in seeing God's overwhelming love for us 
to be humbled and grateful for his unmerited favor. The second thing we can all do is to know how God worked in the past. So many false teachings begin with mischaracterizing God by accusing Him of change or of cruelty or of softness because of His love. By recalling His great workings that He initiated on behalf of His people will give us confidence in our faith in Him for the future that He calls us to. And then finally, we should all glorify God for His perfect redemption through Jesus Christ. In looking at these covenants of the old covenant, we see all the promises that God made even when they couldn't even be understood. What person, before we read of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, would ever understand the term seed of the woman? And yet God shows us that His plan was active from the very beginning. It wasn't that God said, okay, I'm going to try faith with Abraham. Oop, that didn't work. And so I'm going to try the law through Moses. Well, that didn't work. Well, I guess I'll have to go to plan C. Jesus wasn't plan C. Jesus is the only plan ever. And I hope that this week you have seen God's relentless progress of His redemptive plan for His people. And even in these initial covenants, you can see the cross taking shape in the pages of Scripture. That Jesus Christ is the answer to every promise God made. Because that is the point of Scripture. To bring us to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer appointed before the foundation of the world. The Bible exists for no other reason than to bring us to Him and to bring us to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Our Father, Your deeds have been so mighty. Your promises so great. When you move heaven and earth for the sake of those who have rebelled against you, you show your vast loving kindness. You show your vast patience with us. You reached out to us while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion, and you called us from our idolatries, from our worship of ourselves, from our worship of things here on earth. You've called us to place our trust, our faith in you alone through Jesus Christ our Lord. You've dealt with us greatly. You've dealt with us mercifully. You've dealt with us in love so that you would not have to deal with us in your wrath. 
You have loved us with an everlasting love. One that we didn't earn and therefore we can never fumble. And so we follow you because you alone are the one with the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? God, what you have done, we can only thank you. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, who sits our, as our great high priest at your right hand. It is through him we offer our prayer today. Amen.